Welcome to Swan Sessions, a podcast from Swan Auction Galleries. In this series, we're tapping into our well of expertise and listening to Swan specialists and guests on everything from art to ephemera, from a collecting to auction world trends. This episode comes from a recent book event here at Swan. Author Bradford Morrow read from his book, The Forgers, in honor of the paperback release, and concluded the evening with a talk on rare book collecting and his book with book expert and author Nicholas Bassbanes. The evening's discussion was hosted and moderated by Swan President Nicholas D. Lowry. Ladies and gentlemen, if I could ask you all kindly to find a seat or a wall that is not covered with art that you can lean on for the next 45 minutes or so. First of all, I'd like to welcome all of you to Swan Galleries. My name is Nicholas Lowry. I'm the president and principal auctioneer here, and I could not be happier to welcome you all tonight. It's a very special evening, a great reading and a great discussion of a new fantastic book, Brad Morrow's The Forgers, which he just told me a few minutes ago has been selected by USA Today as one of their favorite paperbacks of the month. So that's fantastic. Unbeknownst to Brad, before I even heard that USA Today had chosen it as a paperback selection, I too chose it as one of the most favorite books that I've read in the last few days. It's, it's an excellent, excellent book, and it's particularly resonant for us here at Swan because it's all about our industry. It's all about the rare book industry. It's all about the manuscript industry. Uh, as I was explaining to Brad earlier, we really appreciate it a lot as we're all forgers in our own right. That's a joke. Apparently cutting a little bit too close to the quick there. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, Brad Morrow is the author of eight novels, including Trinity Fields and The Diviner's Tale, uh, and also a short story collection, The Uninnocent. He's the founding editor of Conjunctions uh, and has contributed to many anthologies and journals as well. And we're also incredibly pleased, I hope I don't say that word too often, but it's true, to have with us Nicholas Basbanes tonight, who is the author of nine works of cultural history, uh, with a particular emphasis on various aspects of books, book history, and book culture, including perhaps the tome with my most favorite title ever, A Gentle Madness, which defines all of us very well. Uh, he writes for numerous newspapers, magazines, and journals as well. He'll be having a small discussion with Brad after the reading about various aspects of book collecting. Also, I would be remiss not to let you know that on display tonight, just a small bit of commerce, uh, is the Lawrence M. Solomon Collection of Mystery, Detective, and Science Fiction Literature, which will go on sale here uh, in these rooms next Tuesday, November 10th. If you have any questions about any of the books that are on display at any point tonight, uh, you can track down our specialist, John Larson, who is here. He's in the back, but you'll find him. Uh, he'd be happy to talk to you about those. And I also want to remind you that once you are all enthralled and captivated by Brad's reading, uh, we will be selling copies of The Forger tonight, uh, which Brad will sign after the reading. This is courtesy of the Mysterious Bookshop. And I think I have covered every single base there is. So let me just say one more time how very pleased we are and to welcome up Bradford Morrow, and Nicholas Bazbanes. Thank you, gentlemen. Well, an auctioneer's voice. <laughs> Can you hear me back there? Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming out tonight. Who would have thought? Books would bring out so many people. Book, a book about a book, a book collector, and so forth. And I've already found my book. I'm not going to tell you which one it is but I will be bidding <laughs> next Tuesday, so I've already lost money on the night. The, the Forgers have been asked to talk about the genesis of the Forgers, and it, it does have a kind of, kind of interesting start. 
I was having lunch with my friend, dear friend and editor Otto Penzler a couple years ago, I guess it must have been, and he invited me to write a Biblio mystery for a series of Biblio mysteries that he publishes. And a Biblio mystery involves, as you can imagine, um, books and murder, which is right up Otto's alley. And I said, okay, so it would be like um, you kill a librarian by hitting him over the head with a Gutenberg Bible, and then you run off with the Gutenberg Bible. And he said, yeah, but you can do better than that. <laughs> I thought, okay, I probably can. <laughs> you like that one, Nick? <laughs> it's been done? Gutenberg Bible death? Well, you can do that one, Nick. Anyway, so I, I started thinking, like, seriously, what interests me? Because my whole adult life has been involved with books and rare books. What would be of interest? And I thought, you know, forgery is pretty interesting to me because it really does, you do intersect truth, the values of truth, the, compare, the, the blurry edges of, it takes a lot of truth to tell a lie. It's one of the, one of the lines in the book. And I thought, well, let me pursue that. Let me pursue a forger. And I thought, well, how can you, what would a forger lose that would have been the most important things to a forger? And of course, it's his hands. And so I came up with my opening line. They never found his hands. And once I had that line, I was pretty much off to the races. I'm very interested in uh, calligraphy, paper, ink, the intricacies and the nuances of doing forgery. You really have to be very smart to be a good forger and get away with it. You have to, be, you have to know literature, you have to know the history of paper, you have to know, you have to be a chemist, you have to be a historian essentially. So I started writing this story for Otto. And it became 50 pages and 60 pages. And then by a couple of years ago, right now, actually, it became 90 pages. And I was writing in a white-hot heat. You, you know, it takes me sometimes a while to write a novel, but this was just coming right out. It was, I couldn't wait to get up in the morning. So I promised the book to Otto. I gave him the 90-page finished draft version. But before we could have our lunch, it became 30 pages longer, and it just kept going. And Otto said, well, this wants to be a, a full-length book. And he said, if you can get it to me by the end of the year, I'll publish it in the fall. I have a slot for the fall. I thought, I'm, I'm going to be able to do that. I, I came home and I thought, you're crazy, Brad, because I don't write well under deadlines. But this didn't even require a deadline. It just kept going. So I did finish the book, and I delivered it to him at the end of the year, right on time. And then I turned around, and I wrote him a bibliomystery, because I still owed him one which he has copies of that over there, too, called The Nature of My Inheritance. I'm very proud of this book. I kind of feel like, as a rare book person, I've been researching this my whole adult life. So it was, I hardly had to look anything up. It was just like, you know, I know this. I can do this. I've never forged anything, and I don't knowingly, I don't know that I've ever met a forger. I don't think I have. But anyway, so I thought I'd just read you a few pages. Yeah, I might have. <laughs> but I, I thought I'd read you a few pages from the book just to give you a, a sense of what it's about and then welcome up the wonderful Nick Basbane. So there is a murder in the first few pages, as I mentioned. I mentioned a woman named Megan in this opening passage, or early passage. She is the sister of the guy who loses his hands, who may or may not have been a forger, in fact, and his name is Adam Deal. And I think... Other than that, it's, uh, no setup is required. And then I'll skip forward a number of pages and read a little passage that, in fact, Nick, when he read the manuscript, urged me to write this passage. You know, write about rare book collecting. Put it out there. You know about it. So, And I did. So it's a little bit dedicated to Nick. Dying is a dangerous business, a liberation from suffering, 
a release from life's problems. Death is also an indictment. Once we're dead, secrets that we so carefully nurtured, like so many black flowers in a veiled garden, are often brought out into the light where they can flourish. Cultivated by truth, fertilized by rumor, they blossom into florets and sprays that are toxic to those who would sniff their poisonous perfumes. While I did my best to shelter Megan from certain unsavory discoveries that were made about her brother's life, like many a sibling, she understandably didn't want to believe he was anything other than an innocent victim, some damning details would soon enough vine their strangling way into the light. Details that, as fate would have it, I had already surmised about Adam, but could not before his death practically or honorably reveal to her. Details that I myself was duty-bound to help transit from that darkness of secrecy into truth's awkward glare. Salt on the wound, I know, and yet it would prove to be an unavoidable seasoning. Now that I am on the subject of truth, it's important that I offer a confession, or rather, an illumination in order to bring into better focus Adam Deal's unfortunate death and by way of explaining how I knew what I knew, or believed I knew, about his hidden life. You see, like Adam, I myself was once a forger, undeniably and even unashamedly, triumphantly a forger. There was a time in my life when nothing gave me more joy than forging letters and manuscripts by my favorite writers. Nor was I some naive off the boat who was taken in and, if you will, pimped out by dealers who used my unique handiwork to make millions for themselves while I was left with breadcrumbs. Now, I knew who I was and what I was doing. I learned the ropes and forged, ha, my path. And I adored my job. It is no exaggeration to state that the tremulous thrill that surged through me when I lowered my nib to virgin paper was the most erotic feeling I could possibly imagine, the most intoxicating, the most resplendent. The satisfaction of virtuosity put to the test was like none other, was what I lived for and what Deal possibly strived for too, though I suspect the gentle art of forgery, never, that was a, actually an homage to you too, in a, in a very inverted kind of way, sorry Nick. The gentle art of forgery never gave him the visceral stab of pleasure that it invariably gave me. When I conceived and penned the inscription of an esteemed master in a copy of his or her rarest book, sometimes to a family member, other times to a fellow novelist or poet, an edgy sublimity settled over the moment. It was like electric stardust, say, or a kind of aurora borealis of the mind, truly happiness beyond words. Part of what lay behind this unique feeling was the high-wire nature of the act itself. As a skilled craftsman, the forger has but one chance to get it just right, or else instead of making a book more desirable, more valuable, he has wrecked the thing. But what it has done expertly, and in my heyday I was nothing if not an expert, I think perhaps the finest expert at work during my transient time in the trade, heaven shone down and a choir of rebel angels sang. The rest was about the tense, satisfying pleasure of knowing something others might only try and fail to guess at. Whenever I sold my handiwork to an experienced bookseller for a considerable sum, I knew I had once again hoodwinked the world, even as I had ironically made it a richer, more luminous place. I thought, rightly in the beginning, wrongly later, I could rest assured that my spurious inscribed books, my fake letters and manuscripts, could travel the precincts of bibliographic connoisseurship with the perfect invisibility of the authentic, above reproach, for all intents and purposes, real. Such refined beguilement was the alpha and omega of my art. 
For most of my adult life, I was a man who was all about ink and paper and first edition. Vintage papers for early correspondence and holograph manuscripts. Hand-mixed inks irreproachable for lavish inscriptions. Not words so much as letters, their connectors and flow were what mattered most to me, at least in the beginning, back when I was starting out. Each letter required the right presence and pressure. The tender weight of ink, old sepia, faded black on my small canvas. The ascenders, the descenders, the choreographic shape and spirit of a comma. These were what kept me up at night. The precision of a period, single quotes like black crescent moons in a parchment sky. The adage has it, do what you love. This is what I loved. Then I got caught. Okay, we'll skip forward 100 pages or so. <laughs> I like this guy, I really do. But I can't help myself. This is more about book collecting and his father, who would spin in his grave if he knew he had produced a forger for his son. My father's legacy as a book collector was key to my education about literary first editions, and the debt I owe to him about all things Arthur Conan Doyle. Indeed, all things rare books could never be overstated. He loved pulling down one of his treasured books and showing me precisely what distinguished it, what made it unique. His triple-decker set of Hardy's Tess of the D'Urbervilles, his Emma in original boards, his six-volume Tom Jones in contemporary speckled calf. Each of these was in superb condition and, as he liked to say, fresh as the day they were born. Especially poignant to him was a book that looked just as it did on publication day decades or centuries before. Looked just as it did when the author held it in his or her hands for the first time. To possess a pristine copy was to share the author's experience, to virtually exist in another era as a time traveler might, and to join in communion with all those owners down the years who had protected it against time's depravities. That to him was the virtue of condition. Nor did his love of signed and inscribed copies have much to do with ordinary fetishism or pure market investment value, although he was both a good investor and surely a fetishist of sorts. Again, it had to do with proximity to the author, that the writer's flesh-and-blood hand had touched this title page or that piece of fool's cap, brought an immeasurable, immeasurable significance to the whole object, made it distinctive and exceptional. Yes, but perhaps even more important, personal and even intimate. Authorial DNA, the scribe phrases and tender inscriptions, lifted even the commonest words into a higher category of value. Not just monetary, but, if you will, spiritual. Some of our finest father-son moments had nothing to do with Little League baseball or going camping in the Adirondacks together, but rather took place whenever he got something special in the mail from London or Edinburgh or Paris. He would slowly unwrap the parcel with a look of both boyish excitement and mature satisfaction, and then, after inspecting the rarity with ginger care, hand it to me. This was a little ceremony we both enjoyed, as well as an act of tremendous fatherly trust, I knew. I honored that trust by examining it with the deep shared interest of a newcomer learning from a master before passing it back to its new owner. Book collecting, he memorably told me, though at the time I couldn't grasp his theory, is an act of faith. It's all about the preservation of culture, custodianship, and that's why when I add a book to the collection, I'm taking on the responsibility of keeping it safe. And then there's also the joy of the chase, of striving to find a copy of the book that helped make me who I am. But not just any copy, 
the copy, the most historically interesting and finest copy you can find. Most of all, it's about something I've never quite been able to put into words. There's a line in T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. Have you read that poem yet? I shook my head. Sorry I hadn't, since I knew this was an important moment between us, one that I had better remember the rest of my life. Well, we'll read it together later. It's a line near the end that goes, these fragments I have shored against my ruins. Books make us feel alive. And though we obviously won't live forever, they make us feel as if we might. These walls of books in this room, they stand between us and the unknown. And that's why I feel the safest and happiest and most alive right here. I suppose collecting anything is like that. Tin trucks, teddy bears, teapots. Things our ancestors made. We shore them against our ruins, and they give us poor mortals comfort and joy, just like religion does. Books are my religion, I guess you could say, son. Not only the scripture, but the religion itself. I asked him, what makes a book rare, Dad? If I haven't seen it, he said, at first serious, <laughs> then giving me one of his singular warm smiles. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Brad. <laughs> So Nick, thank you very much. Nick Bazman. Yeah. Oh. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I've been taking notes. I'm so happy that Brad wrote that riff, not only because I suggested it, but uh, <laughs> motivation is, is really the, that ineffable quality, and, and, and Brad understands it because he's not only worn the hat of the collector, but he's been the bookseller. And he's, a, he's, an, he's an author, and he's a teacher, and he specializes in books about books. So he's, he's really covered every aspect of it. And it may even be worth asking him, how did he approach this book, in fact, before I have my opening statement here. As a collector, as a bookseller, as a lover of literature, as a teacher, all these things. But really, I think that one section there where he was just describing what it is about a book. I mean, my most recent book is about paper. What is paper? Paper is... You know, it's a pad. It's basically worthless material. It's not worthless, but it really doesn't have appreciable value until it has something on it, something inscribed on it, something written or printed that others really feel they have to have. And, and you know, you talk about what is rarity, what's scarcity, all these factors come into it. But I think that when he came up with that little discussion with the father, I said, boy, this is brilliant. This is a home run. He's whacked it out of the park. And I just, I love, I love every line of it, I have to say. It was one of, yeah, because really, uh, motiv- again, we go back to motivation, motivation, motivation. And I, and I have to say, I've spent 30 years myself, if I have a modest claim to fame, it's as, as a collector of collectors, a specialist in what we might call bibliomedicine, and trying to find, every, find some of the greatest collectors alive and dead, but collectors through history, and ultimately, what is it about what they've done that endures? This collection that... Uh, in many instances, goes on to an institution or goes on to other hands, and it really does outlive us. But but what is it that drives the individual to to go after? And, and in many cases, you know, rob, steal, uh, uh, lose fortunes, lose. You know, I wrote about an individual right here in New York. His wife told him the Fails collection right at NYU. Basically, it was an ultimatum from his wife: the books go or I go. And, you know, and, and, and NYU is the happy recipient of, you know, his great largesse. But, I mean, that's kind of what happened down there. And I've seen it happen so many times. Let me also say, by the way, it's really great, if I may, if I may, can I just go off into a little, I just want to pay tribute to Swan Galleries because if you know my first book, A Gentle Madness, 
the epilogue of that book really takes place in this gallery. I mean, that book was seven, eight years in the making, and it is very episodic, and it writes about, it tells, talks about you know, collectors in the past, and then I think I did something that nobody had done before or has done since, which is go out and find and profile the great living collectors, the collectors of today. And Brad and I were talking beforehand, you know, you read it over the weekend, and he paid me the very nice compliment of saying, you know, I think it's held up pretty well over the last 20 years, and that so many of the people I identified as the outstanding collectors, and look at what has happened to so many of their collections where so many of these people have now gone to that great library uh, in the past tense, you know, uh, but their, 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 their collections move on. But, uh, I, I, you know, I'd like to, I would like to ask Brad, because it really has always been a matter of some curiosity for me, how did you, I'd like to know also the choice of, of having this narrated, too, in the first person. Uh, was this something that just came to you? I mean... Uh, I guess a point of view is, is without giving away any of the book in any way, but uh, I think having a narrator is, was, was really a, a brilliant stroke. That's number one. But then number two also, do you come to it as a collector, as a bookseller, as a, uh, as a teacher, a writer? I mean, all okay, these things. Well, a um, couple questions there. Third person would have meant that the omniscient narrator knows more than the reader knows. Or there's, there's just, to me, would have been, there would have been a verticality. I don't mean to be too technical here, but there would have been uh, a displacement between the text and the reader. Like, I'm omniscient. I know more than you do. I'm going to tell you this story, and then I'm going to, oh, look, something might happen there that you didn't notice, but I knew all along. It had to be first person for me. It had to be somebody who's deeply, deeply involved in, in this cri- criminal behavior and, uh, you know, but also he loves, he loves real books, too. He's not just a forger. I mean, this guy loves books. He loves W.B. Yeats. He's, a, he's, he's such a strange yin-yang of good and evil, uh, this, this guy. It was interesting, a Washington Post reviewer, really re- well-known reviewer, had mentioned that I had maybe done a redo of, a, of an early Agatha Christie novel I'm not going to mention anything, the, the, the novel, or, but I had never actually read that novel. And I thought, okay, so now I'm in a really good place. <laughs> I'm, I'm channeling Agatha Christie, even though I had never read this book. So first person seemed natural to me. It was the most, and because I've been around book people since I was you know, in my early 20s, I kind of know how we all mm-hmm. speak and think and I think if I would have been a terrible... I never even really considered third person. So I just this was going to be a first-person narrative. And it was going to be a narrative by somebody... I think it would be a very good idea to trust this person to, up to a certain point. But then, yeah, <laughs> he is a forger. So <laughs> Now, your part B, I didn't approach it really as a, a former dealer. Well, that's not true. Everything I have done... As a, as a novelist, as an editor, as a professor of literature at Bard College, as, um, as a former book dealer, as a bibliographer. I wrote two full-scale bibliographies. Everything kind of was working up to the research for this, for this, this book. And as I said earlier, it came so naturally. I was so happy that Otto asked me to write it because it had been sitting there in my head all this time. It was just, it was like, it's like, okay, just how can, quickly can I get it out on the page because it's, it's right there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, I have a little swan story too that I don't want to like get by. Every time I, as a book person, every time I write a novel, 
or the short story collection or something, even a couple of anthologies, I will take the part of the advance, some portion, it's never determined what, and I'll go out with like mad money and I'll buy a rare book that I wouldn't normally buy. So it's just like something I've always wanted, like a one of a hundred Ulysses, the, uh, the Eric Gill edition. That is connected to Trinity Fields. No, no, Giovanni's Gift. So each one of my books has a book at home, a rare book. And I thought, well, what am I gonna, what am I gonna buy for the forgers? And not a forgery, um, but Swan had for sale, as just fate would have it, a set of the Crowborough edition of Arthur Conan Doyle in dust jackets, the 24 volumes, I think it's 24, right? 24 volumes, signed limited. And it was right there. <laughs> and now it's over at my place. <laughs> and I thought, I'll just, I'm going to buy this book. And Otto said, well, there was a certain point where I probably would want to go beyond that. And then I, pro- I figured Otto probably might have taken over. But as I was talking with John earlier, it kind of stalled at a certain number. And I thought, oh my God, really? So it was like, so that's my book. That's my swan story for the forger. So it's, it's so funny to be back here on, for the paperback publication a year later, because that was about a year ago, that sale. And uh, yeah, so it's like everything I do seems to have something involved with books. I actually was a bookbinder at one point, too. I stud- studied bookbinding. I can't think of anything other than burning books or forging that I haven't really done with a book. Yeah, I'd like to pursue the forging element. Okay. Because you could have done any number of, taken any number of approaches yeah. to kill for a book. Or, uh, yeah. But forgery. And, and, and really, did you have to really study? I mean, you said you acknowledge you've never been a forger. You've never probably even met one. So uh, you had this, you had this, uh, this wealth of material from your experiences of all these book-related uh, endeavors. But now this is a field that you really didn't know that much about. So did you have to go and do some research on that and get to know the mind and the? Uh... Well, that's a really that's a cool question. <clears throat> I had some forger. I'm a uh, heroes, if you will. There's <laughs> there are a couple of forgeries, like New York Public Library. There are other libraries that collect forgeries. There are some forgeries that are kind of amazing and they're very valuable and they're quite valuable. Yeah, really. yeah. Uh, like Thomas Chatterton and. T.J. Wise would do... Like, Texas has a great Wise collection. They yeah. have to because they bought them when they thought they were authentic. <laughs> well, that's one way of covering it all. <laughs> uh, my favorite is William Ireland, who actually oh, I love that. who, great, uh, forged Shakespeare. So, But that's the great example of a guy who doesn't have a clue about what he's writing. He got away with I it. Mean, they actually staged one of his plays, and they looked at it, and they said, my God, this is gibberish. You know, <laughs> could Shakespeare possibly? It's impossible that Shakespeare and, could and have done And, you know, this. he did it all for his father, because his father was a Shakespeare scholar, and his father said, gee, I wish I could get some Shakespeare manuscripts. And, uh, like, there are only, like, what, five known signatures or four or something like that. They're very, there's no yeah, Shakespeare. There's six or seven. Where that yeah. stuff went, nobody yeah. knows. It's a part of the great Shakespeare mystery, but... Uh, so uh, William Ireland uh, took care of the problem, and he made his father very happy for a period of time. He discovered it in home. And in fact, I named my my forger in this book. He reveals his name only once and fleetingly, and he actually says, "I don't really." You like have my to name. be alert for that name. And, it, why, and it why is that? That's a that's a legitimate question. It goes right past, and his name is Will, because well, it's not a. <clears throat> Both Shakespeare and Ireland. You see, but that's also, wonderful. That's but also, great. you have to, you have to be very willful to do what he does, and so that was like a kind of triple little synergy for me naming him that. And I knew I didn't even think he was going to have any. I thought, no, I'm going to just leave that. He's going to, one at one point. He's going to like let the veil 
drop and then bring it right back up. It's like within a, it takes place in the middle of a sentence, just very quick. But yeah, I think the forgery interested me because there's something so down and dirty about it. There's something so like physical about the act. I mean, to print up a forgery, um, that's one thing. But to actually, and in the book, you'll see if you read it, he really wants to be that author for some magical moment. He, uh, he sort of, he's not just forging stuff for money, although he makes money. I don't think he's in it for the money, although he, when he gets into forging Conan Doyle actual manuscripts and letters, and then he's suddenly a creator too. And this is a guy who never probably could have become a writer, but he gets to participate somehow in a very <laughs> strange, you know, ob oblique way. And so that fascinated me. And I, I'm also very interested in the blurry line between truth and falsehood. Between, and forgery really lives right there. Hmm. So yeah, that's, it, I didn't go back once I thought of forgery. So if we're, if we're to understand this correctly, it was basically a challenge from Otto to do a biblical mystery? Well, it was an invitation from Otto. Invitation. And, but I like challenge, too. Maybe, maybe not. It's a challenging invitation. How's that? It was, no, it was a really welcome invitation, but I just I couldn't pull this, rein this thing in. It's just it really wanted to be a book, and I'm so grateful that Otto gave me a, a chance to actually write this book because I was able to explore, you know, you know, you know the rare book world, a seedy side of it that exists. I, I can tell you, there are no forgeries in this room. I hope. But I can tell you, there are a lot of forgeries out there. I mean, you know, you can go to any book fair. I saw a Virginia Woolf book uh, uh, at, at a major book fair, and it would have really been worth, it would have been a very wonderful book. It would have been a cool book. Um, and the price was, you know, it was pretty expensive, but it was the first American edition of one of her books from the 20s in a beautiful dust jacket. But the signature is way too big. If you know Virginia Woolf's signature, it's often in purple ink, it's kind of delicate and relatively small. And also, she never came to America. So how would she, why would she, and she also liked inscribe. So you have to know so much to, to like ferret out these forgers. There was a guy on eBay, on, I'm not gonna say anything about eBay. <laughs> Buy from eBay. Confession is good. <laughs> a guy who had a whole slew of William Burroughs signatures. But the eyes were dotted and like, no. No, that's, that's, that's not signed by William, unless he was like on some different kind of drug that, that forced him to dot the eyes that day. But it just, it didn't look right, it didn't feel right, it didn't smell right, it just, it reeked. But you see forgeries all over the place. These just, guys, just books that are signed first editions. You go, on, you go on Abe, for instance, and there are so many people who purport themselves to be booksellers today. <clears throat> you might look up a first edition and you'll see 30, 40, 50 copies of a book, and it's just signed by the author on the title page or the half-title page. And, you know, I believe provenance is, the, is essential to everything. If you don't know where that particular signature came from, then I, dis, I mistrust it, I, I, just I, as a rule of thumb. You know, there are so many William Faulkner signatures out there that just are simply not written in that book by William Faulkner. I mean, he, each author has his or her own kind of uh, way of doing things. And Faulkner didn't really like just, he'll sign his sign limiteds. You wrote it about it in your book. I did, yeah. But he, Alfred Knopf brought some books to a party at and Surf's house. And Bennett Surf said, yeah, Mr. Knopf is here. Would you? And he actually scoured all the secondhand bookstores 
here in New York to get these first editions of, of Faulkner. <laughs> and he showed up at the party, and Faulkner refused to sign them. He said, I make good money signing signed limited books. He said, this is Alfred Knopf. You know, Come on. <laughs> Sign a few for them. I guess he did. But, he, uh, he, but that would be inscribed. <clears throat> so, so. I don't think he did. Uh, oh, he, did he inscribe it? I'm not sure. I don't know. Do you know? I don't know. It's a good anyway, story. Uh, just a bald signed <clears throat> Faulkner in a copy of The Town or something, I would, I would go in deep distrust of that particular book. And, uh, you know, there's, so there are a lot of forgeries out there, and it does intrigue me. Will, in The Forgers, is at a whole different level of expertise. He, he knows his authors, and he creates r actual works of fiction, like A Hound of the Baskervilles, a, a rejected passage. Well, that takes some creative skills. And so that's why it interested me to get into yeah. like, forgery. I think probably one of the most successful and notorious forgers of recent times is Mark Hoffman. Now, yeah. it wasn't calligraphy, but as you know, remember he concocted this oath of a free man, and he, he actually got old paper. He went to the, I think it was Brigham Young University in Salt Lake City. He got a 17th century book, 18th century book, or whatever it was. It was a, yeah, but... but he sliced out a, a blank sheet out of a book. So he had nice old paper. He was able to replicate the ink, but he had an existing text. So the oath of a free man, they know what the text was. Now what he really had to do was to try and get a type that came close to the Baysan book, for which the type also existed. So as you were saying, you really have to have a lot of knowledge and make it very persuasive, and people were willing to pay $1.5 million for that before he started killing people to cover up his crimes. But, yeah, well. Uh, that's, you know. Uh, that's Actually, a, the first forgery that occurs in, in my book, the father owned a Conan Doyle manuscript, which <coughs> the last leaf, Conan Doyle had only written the page number on it, which actually had a William, William, Liam O'Flaherty manuscript, which is nowhere near as valuable as a Conan Doyle manuscript many thousands of years ago. And I noticed the last page was blank. I looked at that page, and I thought, that's really, why did he leave that blank? But, you know, forgery, he, he takes that blank page out. He takes off con the actual one real Conan Doyle <laughs> calligraphic <laughs> moment on that page, and he throws it down the toilet. And then he makes his first, he composes his first forgery. So, yeah, you very clever ways of doing all this stuff. And you really have to know your inks. And you have to know so much to be a, a good forger. So, yeah. I like the fact that you discuss the erotic feeling that we that so many book people get. I mean, I hate to call it erotic, but it really, how do you describe the the sensations that you have? I, I, I know the closest I will ever come to writing a, a love scene in a book, because I've written nine books about books. It's hard, you know, to come up with. <laughs> but in my book, Among the Gently Mad, I have to say I describe, you know, what is it? How do you describe when you pick up you know, something with creamy, wonderful... Mm. Paper and, a wonder, and you, you stroke this wonderful binding and you inhale this wonderful fragrance. I mean, I said, I'm getting aroused. I mean, really, you know. <laughs> and I, I, I actually read this at the Miami Book Fair once. I was on a panel with someone who, had, who's, who was writing about her father, the pornographer, you know, and I said, How do I compete with this? And so that's what I read. Well, there's always to, the vellum. But we have to ask you <laughs> so, what do you do after this wonderful triumph in the genre? Are you planning to do a, a, a return uh, biblio mystery? Yeah. Well, I think I will. Yeah. When I had, I'm, I'm finishing heat. up a, a long novel that I've been working on and off for many years, and it's in it's a big book. This is uh, something that's taken me a long time. It's called the Prague Sonata, 
And interestingly, it does have cross currents with, with what I'm doing here. It's a, a lost Beethoven manuscript because I've identified a period, and I probably shouldn't be saying any of this, but a period in Beethoven's life where nobody knows much about what he was doing. He just mm -hmm. went, after his mother died, he went very quiet. And so um, it's a long, long book, and I hope that it'll be out of my life between Thanksgiving and Christmas. It'll be over somebody else's life, Grove, <laughs> Grove or someone. But then I, then I really do want to revisit The Forger's Daughter, because you had said this as if I had done it on purpose, which I didn't. I, I often in my novels introduce new characters at the end, because I just like that. It feels more mimetic to me, because you know we don't finish a day. I'll, even this evening, I'll meet somebody, and there'll be a new quote-unquote character in my life, but that won't necessarily go on from there or whatever. But So I don't like ending my books with a kind of Ta-da, done, the end. I like having an open kind of ending. And this book, we learn about the daughter, whose name is Nicole, and she seems to be a pretty good little six-year-old, or however old she is, calligrapher. And I, so the book was set in the way back in the 90s somewhere. And so I might really want to kind of pursue her. There you have a, as you said, Nick, you've got a very pissed off guy who's gone to jail, <laughs> and he'll be coming out of jail at some point. There's just a lot of rich more That's stories. That's exactly right. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot more story there. So I think that I think in fact I said there's your if you're you're looking for something to you know what does he do next, and uh, and this time you don't get well you know jumping ahead of ourselves. But uh, well, if you want to write down the plot for me, I would no, love no, no, to know no. what you, it you is. do just fine. And <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm going to turn the whole thing inside out and upside down. I, I can't just do like a little sequel thing. I've got to really reinvent. Reinvent it again for myself if, I, if I'm going to actually do it. So we'll see how that goes. But it, it's be something to. It's been a great experience to say it, to say the least. I've loved working with Otto and with Grove, and you know it's been a, a wonderful thing. So do you have any heroes of uh, biblio mystery writers? No, actually I don't. Oh. I never really read any biblio mysteries, so I'm, uh, I shouldn't have said it that way. Well, I'm sure there are people I would love, and Otto will give me a long list later on, but. Would we um, call the name of the rose a biblio mystery? I wonder. Uh, certainly a biblio I novel. Suppose. I, I, I think suppose. So. Great one. I would have to think about that because I possession well, by buy it. I think is well. That's yeah. That makes sense. That goes in a whole other realm, but it's a great. It's really interesting though when Otto said biblio mystery. It's not a term I'd really been all that familiar with. It's, I mean, yeah, biblio mystery. So I mean, I can put that together. But it's not like a field that I had read widely. And in a way, that was a liberation. It's not like I said to myself, oh, let me go out and read a bunch of Biblio mysteries to find out how you do that. Let me see how that's done. I just thought, well, I'm just going to make it up. I'll just do it my way. And so I was, there was no anxiety of influence at all. It was just the freedom of uh, stupidity, if you will. It's just ignorance. I just didn't know. I'd, the two elements were there, a death, an unfortunate death, and books. And that's, I just took that binary and just went with it. So, Are the authors of choice in the novel your authors? Sorry? Are the authors of choice who are being forged in your novel your actual authors of choice? Did you? Well, Conan Doyle made a lot of sense to me because of Sherlock Holmes. So I, 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 that made sense. I wanted to do something in Ireland, and I love W.B. Yeats. I mean, I, I love Conan Doyle, but there are writers I like a lot better than him. But Yeats made a lot of sense, and uh, yeah, so some of the writers in the in the uh, in the book are also there. Are people I wanted to know who they were myself, so I wanted to have some. 
And so Yeats, I know, it was my first hardcover book I ever bought was Collected Poems of W.B. Yeats. It cost me $7 and something, 95 cents. I still have it. It's, all, it's not one of my collector's copies because it's all held together with um, all kind of masking tape and <laughs> this sort of stuff. But yeah, so Yeats I know deeply. And uh, yeah. I want to be the first to thank you guys for a scintillating conversation and a fantastic reading. Thanks for listening to Swan Sessions, a production of Swan Auction Galleries. We'd like to thank Bradford Morrow and Nicholas Basbanes for the reading and riveting discussion. For more information on Swan, our specialists, and our auctions, check us out at swangalleries.com. Find us on Facebook and Instagram, and follow us on Twitter as at swangalleries. And be sure to check out our blog and Tumblr. Our show is engineered and edited by Keir Jordan and hosted by me, Alexandra Nelson. Stay tuned for our next episode.